My dear brother James Cone. Words fail, any language falls short. Yes, he was a world historical figure in contemporary theology, no doubt about that. Towering prophetic figure engaging in his mighty critiques and indictment of contemporary Christendom from the vantage point of the least of these, no doubt about that. But all I think he would want us to view him through the lens of the cross and the blood at the foot of that cross. So I want to begin with an acknowledgement that James Cone was an exemplary figure in a tradition of a people who've been traumatized for 400 years but taught the world so much about healing, terrorized for 400 years and taught the world so much about freedom, hated for 400 years and taught the world so much about love and how to love. James Cone was a love warrior with an intellectual twist rooted in gut bucket Jim Crow Arkansas but ended up at the top of the theological world but was never seduced by the idols of the world. Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, a teacher at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Oh, wow, that was, that was a really weird inflection at the end of that one. Let me try that again. <laughs> I'm Matt Bernico. Oh, my gosh. I'm Matt Bernico, a professor at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Deloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Today, we're talking with Amoria Armstrong about James Cone, uh, the guy who ignited black liberation theology in the United States. We open this episode with a little bit of Cornell West talking at Cone's funeral, and it's pretty cool. Um, the conversation ran a little bit short, so we've got a quick report from the basement to fill it all out. The the Rod Dreher basement, the one that he's been living in for months, years even. <laughs> in the in the basement of Rachel Hall Evans's house, hiding <laughs> out from the Marxist secret police. Sorry, I'm, it's uh, hard kind of keeping up with the fiction on that one, but you're right. That's kind of the story. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Roger wrote a really funny article. Um, so it was right around Marx's birthday. Uh, so people were posting lots of Marx was right kinds of articles. And uh, uh, Roger, never wanting to miss out on being like sort of a vulture of other people's work, 
uh, decided to he uh, decided that he was going to also publish something about Marx. Uh, so in sort of Dreyer fashion, he took someone else's article, copied and pasted it into his own uh, WordPress site, and then hit publish uh, with a few of his own insights kind of in there. So uh, Roger, it's a kind really of, good way to get clicks. I feel like we should be doing that. Yeah, I guess we're kind of doing that right now. I guess that's true. We're taking something from his blog, he took from someone else's blog. We're just kind of getting really meta with it, um, which is good. <laughs> learning from the master. Yeah, learning from the master. That's right. Um, so uh, Dreyer uh, wrote in quotation marks a piece called "Marx Was Right: A Warning." Um, so he stole a handful of uh, ideas from Jason Barker's article. Happy birthday, Carl. Uh, you were right, and uh, it's pretty interesting, actually, the way he, uh, the way that Dreyer uh, actually agrees with a lot of Marxist insight, but basically uh, has the exact wrong sort of uh, conclusion from any of it. Um, so uh, I'll read a few of his insights here, and we can uh, just dunk on him, as we are prone to do. Uh, okay, so the first thing that he says uh, is this. Look, most of us conservatives in the West are, to some degree, supporters of the free market. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, what we missed, <laughs> what we missed for a very long time, was that it is hard to support a fully free market while at the same time expecting our social institutions, the family, the church, and so forth, to remain stable. This is an insight of Marx's that we conservatives and even conservative Christians ought to absorb. Okay, so the general idea here is that uh, conservatives are supposed to be free market kind of capitalists, but uh, the problem is that the free market is not kind to social institutions that Rod Dreher really likes. Um, so that that's like sort of his, uh, Marxist insight. So he, he kind of like, uh, is noting here that capitalist, uh, or capitalism is sort of a revolutionary movement that moves against a lot of, uh, current institutions, but he thinks that's bad for kind of a different reason than Marxists think that's bad. Uh, Marxists think it's bad because it's like, you know, they're exploitative and stuff. Uh, Roger thinks it's bad because it might lead to gay marriage or something. Um, yeah, it's ironic that uh, in the Communist Manifesto, that's what Marx and Engels say, right? Uh, like, yeah. he's actually correct on that point. But they talk about how capitalism doesn't just sort of revolutionize different structures, it also brings them into being. So the bourgeois family, for example, uh, is, is brought into being under capitalism. But the weird thing about Dreher is that he basically just wants to preserve the bourgeois family. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but he wants them to, like, read the Bible some more. Yeah, yeah, even in the manifesto, I think uh, Marx and Engels say something like, uh, like the bourgeoisie are the actual revolutionary class. Like they're the ones yeah, always yeah. revolutionary, uh, revolutionizing the means of production and, and so forth. So uh, Dreyer's not wrong here, but he's just like not getting the point, which is, I mean, not surprising. Not <laughs> only not getting the point, but uh, uh, he is a like very capitalist subject himself without realizing it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so then he kind of goes on to talk about some other stuff, other quotes that he stole from uh, the other article, but no big deal. Um, okay, so uh, he he kind of ends up agreeing with the point that we just made here, saying, but we can agree that Marx is right to diagnose the revolutionary nature of capitalism, if catastrophically wrong about the cure for capitalism's excesses. So actually, he Marx is not wrong about the cure for capitalism's excesses. But uh, I think this idea that capitalism is a revolutionary sort of uh, political economy is something that we miss out on a lot. It's always changing. It's always moving. It's always finding new ways to expropriate labor. It's always finding new ways to wring that little bit of uh, of uh, like labor time that we have left in our lives out of us in some way. Um, so... Uh, Dreyer's making sort of a uh, an actually right statement here again, but he's uh, angry about it for the wrong reason. Um, <laughs> and also ironic how his uh, his own solution 
to capitalism's excesses at this point is uh, the Benedict option. So go uh, be in a gated community that's sort of ethnically homogenous and uh, read all the, all the same books together. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> that's about right. It's like uh, he wants sort of some type of weird communitarianism, but uh, based on social conservatism. I mean, he's basically advocating for a sort of handmaid's tale kind of situation. <laughs> um, if you think about it, uh, just, you know, a real repressive social order. Okay, cool. Uh, then he goes on to finally, finally kind of getting to the, the, the really big idea that I think that he thinks is really important. And that is the idea of cultural Marxism. Love it. Love that cultural Marxism. Um, so he says the cultural yeah. Marxism that you hear so much about and that so many of the left deny is, uh, inherent in the Marxist principle that there is no such thing as truth and that there's only power. Uh, that's pretty wild. Dean, what do you think about that? Uh, I think a lot of things about that. First of all, um, so I deny cultural Marxism mostly because I would love, love, love to live in a culturally Marxist society. And, uh, you only have to (laughs) try to write, um, journalistic columns and articles from the perspective of being a Marxist for a short time to realize that, uh, tragically, we do not live in the dystopia of the conservative brain. Uh, so that's too bad. Um, yeah. As far as uh, no such thing as truth and only power, um, I don't know. Have you ever heard of Michel Foucault, though? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel the same way. Even uh, me, a liberal college professor uh, teaching on a campus uh, full of liberal college students, boy, is there not much cultural Marxism here. <laughs> I can get down to some more, actually. But yeah. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's also, I, I just, I hate this trope so much, the cultural Marxist trope, because everything that they, everything conservatives typically tie up to Marxism is actually wrong. People being upset that fascists talk on their campus, like, man, I don't know, maybe, like, that comes from a certain kind of leftist consci- consciousness that students imbibe, and that's true. But the fact that students have to, like, mobilize massive movements to try to, like, get fascists to not talk at their campus should tell you that, like, there's no such thing as cultural Marxism. Like, if there was, fascists wouldn't get invited. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, Okay, so then the conclusion of this whole thing uh, for Dreyer is um, not only that Marx is right in some ways, but also that uh, there's a warning about Marx being right. So uh, on this warning, Dreyer says, the warning is twofold. First that cultural Marxism is a real thing, willing and capable of doing real damage, and that you cannot negotiate with these people. Okay. <laughs> I, I hope not. Uh, and second, that unless capitalists figure out how to ameliorate the excesses of the market and technological change on society, they are tempting fate just as their 19th and early 20th century forebears did. Okay, so that's sort of the concluding remarks that Dreher makes about about like Marx being right and why that's a warning. And, um, I mean, the first one, I mean, we was talked about cultural Marxism and, uh, good. Don't let any fascists negotiate with you. I think that's really important. Um, <laughs> uh, the part though about capitalists figuring out how to ameliorate the excesses of the market and technological change is actually really funny because like, good luck. You won't, you won't do it <laughs> because uh, the left yeah. hasn't even been able to do it yet. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, uh, <laughs> it's weird that Dreher wants to imbibe a certain weird Marxist point early in the article that we touched on, right? Mm-hmm. That um, that capitalism is a revolutionary force that keeps on changing a bunch of stuff. Uh, but then Dreher takes that back later down here where he's like, well, like, but we could, um, we could figure it out. 
<laughs> but like, but like for Dreyer, what it would look like to figure that out is just pure reaction. Like being a, just a, being yeah. a fascist, right? Being a, figuring out a way to fuse uh, the social values of their culture with the economics of their culture and, and being like fascist. Like that is like the, I think the, the thing that's on the table that he's not naming because I don't know, he's not smart enough or he doesn't want to upset people. But that seems like the, the only real solution to what he's saying here for him. Yeah. Um, probably the best thing about this warning, however, is that the fact that Dreyer, that Dreyer feels the need to make it is really encouraging. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of that other part in the Communist Manifesto about the specter haunting Europe, right? Right in the beginning. It's scary. Uh, and if it's scary, that means that it's like a real possibility. It might actually mean something. Yeah, I think so. Um, if Rod Dreyer is afraid of it, um, then good. I mean, it's also, <laughs> it's also something that's probably really like, uh, driving traffic to his blog, but, uh. Yeah. I don't know. That good that good spooky ghost. Let's get it in here. Gotta get those clicks. Ha- haunt this place up. Um get it <laughs> haunted. <laughs> Alright. Well, um uh, that's a little bit uh from a report from the basement about Rod Dreher and what that guy's been up to. We'd like to remind you every now and again, just uh so we can kind of keep atop of the uh the recent trends in the immortal science of uh Rod Dreherism. And so that uh, everyone kind of knows what's kind of going on in the the great diagnoses of uh, cultural Marxism. So uh, there we go. Somebody's got to. Someone's got to do it. And it's us. This week, we're talking with Amoria Armstrong, who does the music for our podcast, so far anyway, um, which is pretty great. So you've been you've been listening to Amoria for longer than you've even known. Uh, we talked to Amoria a long time ago, last year even, on the podcast, and we're excited to have her back now. We're going to talk about James Cohn and other James Cohn-related things, I guess. Uh, but before we do that, what have you been up to, Amoria? Well, I've just been working on my dissertation. And also, yeah, just trying to play music more regularly and hanging out with my friends and my girlfriend and, yeah, just chilling. Oh, also playing Assassin's Creed, which is an important part of my life. (laughs) Oh, sick. Yeah. (laughs) Which one? Uh, Four, Black Flag. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I had not played it before, and so I... I've just been slowly working through it, and I'm really enjoying it. So, Do you have to say the Assassin's Creed every time you play the game, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually started saying the Assassin's Creed instead of saying, like, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene <laughs> Creed. <laughs> we believe in, in one hit. Yes. <laughs> Double air assassinations, which proceed from... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Cool. Well, already getting into dangerous territory. That's good. Part of the course. Uh, Matt, what have you been up to? Uh, all my classes just finished. I turned in grades, and uh, now I'm just living my best life now. Yes. Live nice. it. Yeah, it's been sick. That's great. <laughs> Joel yeah. seems proud. Yeah, Dean. What have you been doing? Uh, man, not too much. Planning out my summer, going to a bunch of places, trying to figure out if I'm going to 
go to all the conferences that I actually uh, applied to and then got accepted at. Uh, <laughs> I was like applied to way more than I should under the assumption that no one will want me there. Uh, and then all of a sudden I have a bunch of people trying to make plans for me, which is <laughs> just, uh, I don't know, total failure to plan ahead, I guess. But uh, that's my situation right now. Hmm. That's real. <laughs> uh, yep. Well, I don't have any good transition for how to just get into it. So we're going to uh, just assert uh, the, the will to transition, move right along. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit about James Cone because he passed away recently and he's a huge deal. Uh, so to kind of jump into it on Twitter, Amoria, you summarized Cone's project as uh, nothing other than a call for the abolition of white Christianity and theology and its governance of the meaning of existence, which is a pretty <laughs> cool, bold a uh, very good way of putting it. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about James Cone and like why he's important and maybe why you uh, wanted to articulate it that way? Yes. Um, so James Cone, he's often called like the father of black liberation theology. I don't really like calling him the father. I feel like I just like avoiding the kind of like parental language around it. But he definitely <laughs> is like the one who kind of like kickstarts it in the late 60s. And um, basically why he's important is wildly until that time, there hadn't been any kind of academic theological scholarly discourse around like what racism has to do with theology and um basically james cone and his early work he's writing during the late 60s so a lot of black power movement is popping off and martin luther king jr gets assassinated and he's like i gotta write this now about how the gospel is not antithetical to black liberation but it's actually black liberation is actually revelatory of the core of the gospel which is this theme of liberation and so what he talks about is he does something really interesting, which um, he kind of like talks about how like Jesus's Jewishness is related to Jesus's blackness and modernity. So he talks about like how Jesus's particular situation as a Jew under imperial occupation and oppression um, kind of reveals the nature of his message as a liberatory one. And so to think about like who inhabits that structural position today and he's like black people do. And so he kind of like says that because Jesus is Jewish, Jesus is black. And so we can understand like the core of the gospel through this theme of liberation and how it relates to black liberation. So all these theologians who kind of haven't been able to deal with the fact that why Christianity and theology has contributed, um, not even just contributed, but kind of has like been a key driver of things like the slave trade and black enslavement for hundreds of years and then Jim Crow segregation, not to mention glo global anti-black kind of uh, oppression um, and then like lynching and continuing into, you know, the 60s when he's writing, he's like, the fact that there's been all this silence and theology around this is really uh, kind of revealing of how white theology is actually a part of the status quo, is a part of affirming an uh, anti-Black world. And so he says um, white theology, white Christianity is basically the Antichrist and uh, is antithetical to the gospel. And so he's talking to both Black people and white people um, or non-Black people. He's t He's talking about basically like how 
the uniqueness of Black experience, Black culture, and Black history relate to the gospel of Jesus and wants to say that it's in fact at the heart and has something unique to tell us about who God is. Um, In fact, not even just unique, but that is antagonistic to how white theology has understood the task and nature of theology. So I think that's why I said he's against white theology and its governance of the meaning of existence, because the way that theology until James Cone as an academic discourse was kind of producing itself was as though race had nothing to do with theological anthropology or who God is and how we understand God or what it means to be a human, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's kind of like, actually, you all have not been able to think about the depths of to which racism and anti-blackness affects and infects Christian theology. So uh, he's very in very strong terms it's just like yeah white people have and not even just white people but whiteness is completely antithetical to like the gospel of jesus uh that's pretty cool um and that definitely helps me a person who doesn't know anything about theology kind of situate uh james cone and sort of that framework too so that's helpful great um yeah thanks <laughs> uh well uh how has james cone impacted your work specifically or uh how has he not yeah. Um so James Cone um has been a huge influence in my work. He's the reason I'm a theologian, uh, if I'm honest. So when I was a junior in college, uh I read his book. I found his book on my dad's like bookshelf in his study. He was a pastor. He was a pretty conservative pastor, but he had James Cone's book, My Soul Looks Back, which is kind of like James Cone's theological memoir. Um, and in, I was reading it and was just kind of like hit over the head by like the clarity and power of what he was saying. And I had been going through my own struggle trying to figure out like what it meant to be a Christian and to want to affirm black liberation like had been going through my own process of learning about black history and realizing the depth of anti-blackness and uh white supremacy in the world and was trying to figure out like why at my christian college was it so difficult to get any kind of like real not even just acknowledgement but a kind of desire to change uh desire to like radically shift how we understand what theology is and what god calls us to etc this i was still pretty christian at this time so that's how i would articulate (laughs) (laughs) but um but it was very much like a a turning point for me in, in being able to see someone who was just like actually um like the reality of black oppression that you witness and that you're experiencing and that like presses in on your life as a black person is like precisely the source for which you can like draw on to retool Christian theology and use it to speak back against Christianity and it's like deployment by whiteness. Um, So for me, it's been, like, super influential in how I understand, like, what theology is for, which is, like, understanding it as kind of, like, 
this material that can be appropriated and retooled to articulate something about blackness and liberation and uh something against whiteness and its ideas of possessing everything and being sovereign over everything so i mean he's pretty much like why i do what i do <laughs> or he's the one who kind of let me know that i could do what i'm doing i guess like he was the one who let me know that like you could be a black theologian and not have to uh like not have to dampen or mute your blackness in order to kind of like use theology for something hmm. uh that kind of reminds me of a couple years ago a few years ago now um there was this hashtag on the internet james Combs right um it's... that daniel camacho started yeah. and uh that was like a pretty interesting way of bringing theology into public activism i thought um and I don't know, it seemed to sort of encourage that, like, uh, using using theology as a sort of political material, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you what do you think about that? Um, how does Cohn inform those kinds of social movements like Black Lives Matter or uh, or how can how can he kind of lend more materials to resisting things like white supremacist Christianity? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think. Something that. I always respected about James Cohn was how much like real experiences of black people were always at the forefront of his mind when he was writing and I think that provided him with a certain like clarity of thought and so towards the end of his life he was given these um lectures at different universities about like the cry of black blood uh and talking about lynch lynchings so his um his last book well he has one book that's about to come out posthumously but the book before that is the cross and the lynching tree which is about the relationship between like lynching and the crucifixion and like this kind of jarring uh kind of relationship between the two and how that's been very unthought in the history of theology but for him growing up like the, at the time he was growing up in Bearden, Arkansas, which was like a, Arkansas is a lynching state and Bearden was like run by white people. So it very much was like a reality for him, the threat of lynching, the threat that his father could be lynched and the reality of someone like his mother um, being possibly in harm's way also within the society. The fact that him and his brother could maybe be harmed by this kind of like Ter white terrorism against black people was like a real thing that he lived under and um so that was always in his mind but even today like he references things like Trayvon Martin and you know Michael Brown and other black people who've been murdered by police or by vigilante white people and talks about like how the, the their blood right demands some kind of response theologically and i don't think it's a demand to make sense of it but it demands a kind of indictment of the order of this world and so for him right he's like not just jesus is black but god is black and the order of this world is antithetical to what god's desire is for humanity um and especially for black humanity which is a world in which black people are free 
and free to kind of live to the utmost of their being. So I guess how, I mean, I guess so I think that relates to like public kind of activism in that he always kind of is writing for his people. So he has a book called For My People that's about black theology and the black church. But I think he also is like writing for black people in general and wanting to kind of motivate and inspire black people to see like this black religious history that we have as a resource for um working for black liberation in the world um cool well speaking of activism um and i guess that side of things uh to prepare for this conversation uh dean and i read uh james cone essay uh the black church and marxism what do they have to say to each other um and it's a pretty cool essay uh we get to see a little bit about how like the christian leftist conversation was developing in the 80s and um cone goes out of his way to find points of connection between the emerging black theology that he was thinking about and marxist philosophy and politics um i don't know is there something cool that you thought was in this essay was there something that stuck out to you it's been like 40 years since he wrote it but i still think it's pretty uh pretty prescient yeah i mean part of what was interesting to me reading this was um like it felt like it kind of confirmed something about his methodology which is like james cone as a theologian was also always interested in history and would always kind of like bring in a historical kind of analysis into his theology and so it was interesting to me that in trying to think about what black church and black marxism have to say to each other he goes to history and is like trying to like recover like these black socialists and black socialist preachers and kind of think about like why haven't they been really attended to uh both in a kind of marxist view of its history but also in a black church view of its history and and use that as a kind of inroad to the conversation. Um, so I thought that that was cool. Um, so that's something I really appreciate about Cone, and it has affected my own work too. But then I think another interesting thing that he points out is the way that, uh, and this is like. <laughs> continues to the day to today but the way that marxist analysis often thinks of race as secondary to its analysis and so i think he he really highlights i think what is it he says um marxist wait the question is whether the black church in particular and the black community generally has anything specific and unique to contribute to the struggle for liberation in this society Marxists mm-hmm. seem to deny that we have anything to contribute, and that is why they seldom turn to our tradition for insight and guidance. Like other whites, they seem to think that they have the whole pure truth. And I was just <laughs> laughing reading this because it was reminding me actually of an article that was on Jacobin recently about like, uh, you know, race and socialism and how socialism has actually been. Uh, even though it's had some failures, it's actually been, you know, one of the best places for anti-racist critique. But it gets <laughs> to that analysis by being pretty denigrating to two kind of like critical strands of black 
Radical Thought Today, uh, in Cedric Robinson and Walter Johnson's work being a kind of like Black Marxist perspective, and then also Afro-pessimism. And it was funny to me because the way that the whole article was written was just as though it had nothing to learn from the analysis of those people. So it doesn't even like bother to try to get at what those analyses are about and what they're trying to bring into light. It kind of is just like they fail to attend to the fact that Marx talked about slavery actually. So see Marx is like <laughs> unassailable as the kind of like a source of the analysis that we need. And so, yeah, I mean, I thought that was, like, really, like, <laughs> a pretty, like, pointed and incisive way of saying something about a problem that persists today. Uh, yeah, that's something that really stuck out to me as well. Uh, and Matt and I were talking about it specifically with the kind of Jacobin brand, I guess, of socialist politics, which sees something like race as sort of epiphenomenal or, like, symptomatic only of capitalism yeah um yeah i don't know uh there was one one quote we pulled out where cohen says um many socialists like white christians seem to be unaware that there is a serious credibility problem as they're <laughs> analyzed from a black perspective of reality which yeah. i love that a lot and then he mm -hmm. says uh like white christians who appear to be white first and christian second white socialists also seem to be white first and socialist second such an identity will always present difficult problems in the context of dialogue with black people. Um, so I guess like kind of thinking about this a little bit more, how do you think that Christianity and socialism both get co-opted by whiteness uh, despite like their claims to be kind of liberating discourses or projects? There was another quote that I thought was really pertinent to that. But I can't find it now. Oh, well. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, like, part of what I think is incisive about what Cohn does here... Oh, here it is. And he says, um... Marxists have to be open to hear the meaning of... Well, let me back up. He's, like, talking about how there needs to be openness between the Black church and Marxism. And he's, like... The openness about which I speak must include, on the part of Marxists, a willingness to take seriously the uniqueness of Black oppression in the world generally, in the United States in particular. The uniqueness of Black oppression is not to be understood theologically, as if Blacks are elected by God, but only scientifically. It's a fact that most people who suffer in the world are people of color and not European, and it is a fact that the people responsible for that oppression are white Europeans. Marxists have to be open to hear the meaning of that fact by asking whether fascism is inherent in the very nature and structure of Western civilization. But Marxists and other socialists do not like to focus on their racism, and they try to make us blacks believe that racism will be automatically eliminated when capitalism hmm. is destroyed. Um, <laughs> and then he goes on to say, unless white socialists are willing to acknowledge our unique contribution to the struggle then we have nothing to talk about. Uh, I like part of what I think is happening here when he's talking about like is fas is like fascism inherent in Western civilization is I think really moving us away from an analysis of Christianity and something like Marxism as like things that get co-opted by whiteness 
And it's really requiring us to ask, how is it that these identities are in fact like formed in and through whiteness? Hmm. Uh, And so like, instead of there being some kind of like pure kind of like core to Marxism or Christianity that gets corrupted, like what is it about the formation of these things, how they have historically developed that like is also a part of the historical development of whiteness which is to say like how does something like uh, the identity of workers come to be and like how is it that like i don't know the relationship between workers and the bourgeoisie or something um like is formed in and through this whole like european western civilization which is not to say that like Marx isn't also like reading about what's happening in other parts of the world and thinking about that, but his analysis of race is very flat, right? So he doesn't really have one. And so he's not able to think about like, what is the difference between this kind of like internal, like European conflict between workers and the bourgeoisie and how that's different from a colonial context, how that's different from a, like the context of slavery and black enslavement in particular, like racial slavery, um, not just like slavery as an analogy to like wages and workers. So to me, what Cone does is kind of like talk about how, uh, or I guess he like helps us see, right, that like Christianity and Marxism have a history and they're related to this like history of the west and whiteness and so if we're not able to kind of account for how that's like been built into the very analysis that it gives us you're just going to be kind of trying to apply these concepts and ideas to like the black situation without thinking about how like that's actually a very particular and unique situation that requires a particular and unique framework for understanding which isn't to say there can't be any kind of like discourse between them but to just kind of be like well the black situation is just analogous to the situation of like workers like is to kind of like fail to take seriously this uniqueness that he's talking about and particularity that he's talking about of black oppression so i think that's like super I was just like, yo, he's killing it right here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and it, it made me think, too, there's this book called Black Marxism by Cedric Robinson, and I think he tries to do more to show how, like, Marxism develops without a kind of really thinking about the history of race and how that relates to the development of these ideas and, and the Marxist analysis and... Um, so it's a yeah it's an interesting book not without you know its own criticisms or whatever but i think it's important to think with Hmm. yeah i think that's a really helpful intervention into the conversation um i mean you mentioned jackman earlier and other other marxists who do like uh you know who consider race as sort of um a phenomena of capitalism or something um and even just like the jokes that people make about the immortal science of Marxism, Leninism or something. Right. But they do have histories. And I think that's um, probably one of the most helpful interjections people can make about socialism. 
uh, that they don't doesn't have all the answers, or it's not like a universal kind of ideology that you can just apply to situations. It's not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a discourse. I like that. Yeah, and I mean, I think like what's interesting about this thing too is James Cohn is like, yeah, we do need like an anti-capitalist analysis, right? Like he's like, we can't look at our situation. We can't look at the black situation and not see how capitalism is like fucking black people over. Mm. Excuse my language, mm. but but what he's saying is <laughs> you're <like>, excused. <laughs> yeah, what what he's saying is like we can't then just be like where the place where all the answers come from is this like yeah. discourse that develops in like the heart of like Western like philosophy and. But, you know, like, it's it's just, like, the, it, he says, he talks about, like, how black Christianity or black theology comes from, like, people who are descended from African slaves versus, like, this kind of Marxist analysis, which is not to say Marxist analysis is, like, divorced from, like, the struggle of proletariats, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not trying to argue that. But more of what I'm trying to argue is, like, there's a difference between being a worker and being a slave. Right. And so, like, the kind mm-hmm. of analysis that comes from being the descendant of slaves, like, requires a different kind of, like, perception of how power is working than the kind of analysis that comes from being descendants of workers or maybe even descendants of people who own slaves. So, I think for him, he's, like, assuming that these concepts from this positionality can just be applied to the positionality of people who've been slaves or are descendants of people who are slaves is like hubris yeah and just imprecise um, <laughs> on like yeah and on an yeah, analytical I, level yeah i think that's probably one of the especially like frustrating things about marxism is that imprecision despite so many claims to precision like i always think about um this thing that Engels wrote like around the time of the communist manifesto called uh well it's translated differently but the one i always read is the principles of communism and one of the uh sections in it is called in what way do proletarians differ from slaves and it is like the worst little section it's not Uh, very long but essentially essentially he's like yeah this is what a slave is and this is what a proletarian is and like yeah slaves have a bad but like at least they like have somebody who will feed them and you're just like yeah that's that's probably not the best way to go about this (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like wild actually though yeah. kind of terribleness of worker slave analogies and mm. it's a a place and this is where i think afro pessimism is actually really interesting discourse this is getting a little bit away from james cone but i think it has a really like striking critique of the kind of analogy and it's like flaws and yeah that's all i'll say about that <laughs> just to stay on james cone <laughs> well- <laughs> nah, that's cool. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, you can say more if you want to. Yeah, please. <laughs> nah, that's all I got for now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, well, I want to be sensitive of your time, um, so maybe we can just skip to the last question. Is that cool, Dean? Yeah, I'm fine with it. Moya, is that good? Sure. Okay. Cool. Well, um, what do you think the future is for Cone's legacy and theology? This is a really interesting question. Um, in part because I think what's interesting after his death is, uh, you have, like, white institutions and theologians, etc., who, like, 
are maybe like theological gatekeepers in a lot of ways still, right? Who kind of are reproducing a certain idea of like Christianity and theology that I think is antithetical to Cohen's project, but it's like attempting to co-opt his words and his radicalism, kind of in a similar way to someone like Martin Luther King Jr. gets co-opted. And so I think the future of Cohen's legacy and theology, like to me, I'm I'm not interested in like a kind of like I'm not and what's interesting is James Cone was not interested in reproducing little James Cones. Like he wanted his students to find <laughs> their own voice and he wanted them to like find what it is that they're passionate about and speaking to theologically. And so I think like uh I don't know if I want to talk about a future of Cone's legacy, but I do think that there is like a sense in which he witnessed to something that we can all be like both inspired from and learn from and be students of, which is how to bring the urgency of one's situation into the work that you're doing. So I think for me, the way that I see like Cone's imprint on my work is trying to think about like, what is it that's pressing on black life today? And how does theology need to be retooled in order to address those most pressing things? And so for me, that's around things like race and reproduction and um, supersessionism. Um, but, and that'll be different for other people. But to me, you know, I think his ability to kind of take the neo-orthodoxy of Karl Barth and Paul Tillich, which is like the white theologians who was trained in and kind of retool them in order to say something about the black situation and black oppression and black liberation is like something to be studied in terms of like how to take these theological material or whatever kind of material you're working with, how to take that and like, reshape it in order to say something for black people so to me it's like if there's going to be um a future for like count like cone what cone kind of like witness to and this like use of theology that he makes visible or apparent like the way to do that is not by trying to reproduce james cone ourselves um but by trying to like be students of that urgency and be students and attentive to like the demand of black blood that like exists for us and um, to like continue to like read him, continue to study him, not because he has all the answers, um, but because he indexes something about like the black situation and its relationship to theology and about like white Christianity and it's like attempt to take over and control <laughs> like the world basically. Um, so I don't know. That was like a little rambly, but I guess it's um, good. Yeah. I guess I'm just like, keep reading James Cone and like, you know, keep like thinking with him and wrestling with him and not just like purely agreeing with him, but like keep actually doing a kind of like critical work with what he like gifted us which is like 
shitload of like really thoughtful and powerful text. <laughs> uh, that's a really good good note, I think, to conclude the cone bit. I'm going to put you on the spot, though, and ask you one uh, routine question that we started asking everybody who comes on our show. Okay, and we weren't okay. asking you back when we uh, back when we did the first one with you. So, uh, okay. What do you think that Christians should know about uh, leftists? And what do you think leftists should know about Christians? So I guess I'm, I'm asking you the same question that Cohn sort of asks himself. Uh, Christianity, um, black, the black church of Marxism, what do they have to say to each other? <laughs> um, they're both trash. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. That is putting me on the spot. I don't know that I have an answer. I feel like... No, I don't know if I have anything. I was just going to say, like, <laughs> like um, you know, maybe leftism can say to Christianity, like, you know, kill your saviors. Or, sorry, leftism can say to Christianity, yeah, kill your saviors. And then Christianity can say to leftism, kill your idols. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good bumper sticker. <laughs> I'd, buy, I'd buy that, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh that could be a that should be like the title of a, a a double double album that you make yeah i don't even know if i want to <laughs> articulate it as kill your saviors <laughs> now i'm getting like because I, I think it's more like uh like kill this engine of redemption or something that like uh, this hmm. redemptive narrative yeah maybe that's it kill this redemptive narrative but i think yeah, yeah. But then I think Marxism can become a redemptive narrative for people too. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. So maybe it's like leftism can learn from Christianity not to have redemptive narrative. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's true though, and it is really frustrating uh, listening to a lot of Marxists who kind of paint themselves as uh, sort of the saviors of like the working class or other people um, in a way that's really troubling and gross like i don't know you don't have to like save people just like make a world where people don't <laughs> like get eaten alive by like a, a dumb machine of politics like it doesn't have to be a, a redemption narrative just a kind of like survivability thing or something i don't know yeah i agree with that um all right well thanks a lot for coming and uh chatting with us amoria it's always fun to get challenged by all the stuff that you say and uh i don't know spend the rest of my day uh trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do being a, <laughs> a Marxist and a Christian person. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad I'm going to go to work and make some coffee and, uh, I guess, uh, think about that the whole time. So that's fun. Thank you guys for having me. It's always yeah, thanks. fun to talk to you and, you know, remix things last time. I think we like, we're talking about Trinitarianism and pizza, and this time it was Assassin's yeah, Creed right. and Nicene Creed. So thank you all for letting <laughs> me get my theology geek out. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us all over the internet. We're on Facebook at The Magnificast. We got a good Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement that you can come and talk to us about other stuff and talk to other folks and share some good leftist Christian links. Uh, we are on Twitter at the Magnificast. We are also on Patreon if you want to support us financially at patreon.com/slash the Magnificast. 
Um, but if you also want to, if you want to support that Magnificast brand, you can by buying t-shirts. Matt, what's the deal with those? Yeah, um, well, we have more t-shirts made. Uh, you can go check out our Twitter or Facebook to see what they look like. Um, if you want to buy one, uh, you can go to cottonbureau.com slash product slash the dash Magnificast, a really great uh, URL that I wish was easier, <laughs> but it's not. Uh, they're not super expensive. I think they're like $15 plus shipping or something. Um, so get at them. They're pretty cool. Uh, also, if you are into this podcast, there are a couple places you might find some other ones that you uh, you could enjoy. So one podcast network that we're on is called Theology Corner. And they have all kinds of blogs and, and other podcasts like Friendly Anarchism, for example, a good Quaker lefty podcast that we're really into. Um, and you can also find us on another podcast network called Critical Mediations. And they also have a great web presence and some really good writing. Matt did a, a piece for them a little while back on a leftist theory of the media, which is really cool. Um, and there's all kinds of other podcasts on there like Brave Left Radio or Season of the Bitch or Friendly Anarchism Again <laughs> also shares, uh, shares that space with us. If you're not listening to Friendly Anarchism, you need to. <laughs> it's true. You do need to. Uh, yeah. So also, lastly, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, I know that we say this every week, but it actually is genuinely super helpful. Um, it's not just helpful for like giving us content to talk about, even though that is a big thing, <laughs> but also it's helpful because it keeps us on like the, the iTunes charts, uh, and we're not going to usurp Joel Osteen's spot at the top without those reviews. So feel free to, to drop us one of those. And if you already did, just drop us another one. Pretend you're, you're, uh, you know, your, your best self and then, and then make up a better self and then leave that review. And uh, eventually you're going to leave a review as your very, very, very best self. And that's what Joel Osteen's book is all about. Living your best life now on the iTunes charts. <laughs> Great. Uh, thanks again, Amoria. And uh, by the way, like we said earlier, uh, all the music, the transition music and intro music in our podcast is from Amoria. Uh, so check out the rest of her stuff uh, all over the internet. She's everywhere. Um, but uh, we're going to use our outro as usual with the illogical spoon. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.